Well, I'm so happy to have the sound team of the recent release, The Outer Worlds, with me. I have Dylan Hairston, sound designer. Jarek Flores, a technical designer. Justin Bell, the studio audio director and composer. Scott Gilmore, senior sound designer. And Zach Simon, senior sound designer. Thank you guys so much for uh, spending a little time to talk about this game. Thanks for having us. Thank yeah, you. Definitely, thanks. <laughs> so I'm going to start with Justin. Talk to me about when you first found out about this project. How long ago was it? And why, in your mind, was it both kind of somewhat terrifying and exciting all at the same time? If it was, I'm making an assumption, but what, what was your first reaction to hearing and, and kind of getting a sense of what this game was going to be? Yeah, so I think we started talking about The Outer Worlds at Obsidian probably about three years ago, about that. And um, not much was known at the time about it, at least across the across the company. We just knew that Tim Kaine was going to join his former colleague, Leonard Boyarsky, and they were going to make a new IP. And I think we had some understanding that it was uh, going to be a science fiction game. And I personally had never worked on a sci-fi game before, so that was pretty exciting for me. And so just at least initially, there was a lot of mystery around it because, you know, they, they kind of locked themselves in a room and were hashing out the the world building and sort of the, the broad strokes of the project for, for, for a good while, actually. Mm-hmm. So for anyone who's not like familiar with Obsidian Entertainment, you guys have a long track record of um, titles that are somewhat science fiction, fantasy. Obviously, I think some ones that stand out that people know were Fallout New Vegas. I'm a big fan of the South Park, The Stick of Truth, which is another great release. Um, Alpha Protocol. Uh, uh, I mean, there's a handful uh, Armored Warfare. A, a lot of interesting titles that fall into different aspects of, like I said, science fiction, fantasy. So when the team set out to do The Outer Worlds, did they want to introduce aspects of pre- other titles, things that they've learned? Like, what, what, how, how do you describe the knowledge that was learned from all the previous titles? And how were they going to approach this game? Because it's, you know, it's a new IP. It's building something from the ground up. So one of the sort of pillars of the game is that we were trying to leverage our experience making Fallout New Vegas and apply that to this new game that we were making. So a lot of the leadership on on the Outer Worlds and a lot of the people that actually worked on the Outer Worlds also worked on Fallout New Vegas as well. And that part of our our history as Obsidian really played into that. Um, Another large group of the team came from one of our previous projects, which was um, Armored Warfare. And uh, it was using a different engine, but I think just the team building that happened on that team was really great because we were able to sort of continue that lineage into the into the next project. That's awesome. So when you think about building your team, how do you ramp up? How, like how, how big is your in-house sound team? And then how do you ramp up like over the course, maybe from pre-production into production into, you know, shipping your gold master? I think by the time that we shipped, the the team was about 10 people and so that was seven sound designers me uh and two producers and uh, the way that we carved up the work was kind of each person sort of owned a very uh, a chunky segment of the entire game um but early on it started off really small so when we were doing what we called the prototype we we had a very small team and the audio team just consisted of me and that was really just experimenting with things and then building this thing that we called the beautiful corner um, and the beautiful corner was just sort of a a really nice looking level that tried to set the tone for what the game might look like and so we just put a lot of effort into polishing that up and making it sound really nice um, and then throughout the course of the project um, later on, Zach joined the project and we, we worked on what's known as vertical slice. Um, and that's a, a period of the project where you're, so you've done on the, on the prototype phase, you've, you've sort of established in a very loose terms, what the game is going to be like. And then vertical slice is your first opportunity to try to actually build the game and get ready for production. So you're figuring out all of your pipelines, all of your technological requirements, you know, you're trying to establish what the gameplay feel is going to be like, what the pacing is going to be like. Um, and that was about a three month, uh, process. And then. After that, we entered production, and um, production lasted, I would say, about two years. 
and we steadily ramped up in terms of staffing from that point forward. So for, for a long while, it was just Zach alone. And the rest of the team was focused on another project that we were shipping called Pillars of Eternity 2. And once that uh, game ramped up, half of the Pillars team went on to continue doing Pillars DLC. That was Scott and Dylan. And then I left that project and I joined Zach on The Outer Worlds. And later that year, Jarek joined the team. And then Scott joined the team around the October timeframe. And then we had another team member, Mark Rios, uh, who was responsible for doing a lot of the environmental sort of technical side of things. He, uh, he joined the team in around November. Then Dylan joined in January. And then we hired a new employee, um, Renzo uh, Heredia, and he joined the project in March. And then we had yet another new hire in April, and that was Ali Mosini. And that wrapped up the team for, for the duration of um, production all the way through to when we went to Goldmaster. When you are working on a game title, how do you make a, a where, where does your priority list start? Because when I look at your weapon list, it's insane. When I look at the number of worlds you have, it's insane. And I, like everything is important. So how did you structure and work with your team and, and figure out kind of the order of, of attack? I think it really helped to have um, people focused on one sort of subject matter. You know, we had Zach working on weapons, Jarek working on VO. We had Dylan on ambiences and environments. We had Scott on creatures. I was looking at music and sort of like higher picture stuff. We had someone on inventory, someone on cutscenes, someone on sort of the environment tech side. And um, that really allowed us to stay really focused on completing each element, even as the rest of the team was sort of locking down their content as well. Um, and, and, you know, there is always that sort of chicken and egg kind of thing with audio, right? Because we, you know, some things really need to get locked down first before we can really finalize stuff. But we tried to make a point of uh, just working in tandem with the rest of the team as much as possible even though that wasn't always something we were able to achieve 100% of the time. So let's start diving into some of these uh, specifics. So when I think of the weapons and the various classes, there's a bunch, there's uniques, there's science, there's handguns, long guns, one-handed, two-handed weapons, heavy weapons. How do you guys determine what are the, which of the stuff is going to go out and, and you're going to record? And how do you structure your sound? So, you know, I'd love to hear from Zach, you know, at what point do they say, these are all the weapons in the game, this is what they look like, this is the unique kind of aspects of them? How, where, do you, where do you begin, Zach? Um, I think at the very beginning, we, I mean, at the very beginning, we didn't know exactly how many weapons there were going to be exactly or what the categories were even necessarily. But once more of them started coming online, I, I almost grouped them up how you just said them. You know, we had long assault rifles, handguns, uh, our science weapons and stuff like that. And to start, you know, I, I tried to, design them together in like one session, right? So we can have consistency between at least those groupings of of guns. As far as like recording and stuff like that, you know, I um, at the very beginning, uh, we knew we wanted our guns to sound, you know, realistic. So like a pistol should be a pistol. Um, that's what like the audience expects to hear. And so we tried to get real world equivalents of those weapons if they if they were a real world weapon. Right. So we actually recorded a lot of like airsoft guns for a lot of the like reloads, magazine inserts and stuff like that. Um, as far as the gunshot sounds go, we didn't get an opportunity to actually go out and record those things. But we got some really good uh, libraries from uh, people like Pole Position and Sound Morph, actually. And, you know, we, we tried to find like a one to one, like, OK, here's a pistol that looks almost like ours in the game and let's try to match those up and and you know also add in sweeteners and stuff like that to make it sound sound cool but to still kind of you know for somebody who's shooting a pistol they're going to go okay yeah that's a pistol or okay that's a that's a machine gun that kind of thing and across all your weapons how, how do you find variety and separation and and is it just kind of trial and error and seeing what matches with with the visuals does does your sound inspire the visuals and vice versa like uh, how, how do you work in, in in tangent with the visual team in in a perfect world yes that would be really good um, most of the time I was kind of trailing behind the the visual team so I didn't always get to influence them um, but you know there were times where I had ideas and I would go to like the the VFX 
artist and you know say hey I have an idea for this and you know maybe if he had time he could he could kind of change it to match that um, as far as like I think you were saying like making them sound different and and unique mm-hmm. from one another you know I think just having them in the same session and being able to cross reference and you know we got here's one pistol here's another pistol and here's a revolver and being able to go back to the first one and listen to it and kind of compare the two and go okay that doesn't you know sound different enough what can I throw in here to make it sound more unique you know what I mean and and you know maybe maybe there's an element in one that I can take and move it to this other one and that'll make that one sound more unique so having them in the same session really you know let me kind of swap layers and stuff like that around to get them in the most unique uh ballpark possible if that makes sense yeah i think um the thing that came to mind too in listening is that just how those weapons interact with the space so can you guys talk a little bit about with weapons within spaces how does your engine hand-to-hand work with kind of those hard effects that then are going to be reacting to the spaces how how did you guys build it and and what did you find was kind of the best um combination yeah so each gun actually has its own unique uh, like tail or like reverb when you're outside. So if you're in an exterior, each gun will have its own unique one. However, when you're inside, we actually, it, it's not done real time. It's done actually just kind of switching out a layer. Okay. Um, so, you know, if you're in a small space, you'll get the small space uh, gun reverb instead of the exterior one. And we actually had to we had to do this for the ambiences as well. And Dylan will probably talk more about this, but we actually had to put like volumetric boxes around every single room in the game and then tag that with, this is the, you know, the ambient sound effects that are going to play within that room. And on top of that, we set a, uh, a state um, that, that talks to our, our middleware wise and can, can basically switch which layer is playing on the fly. So we say, you know, we tag each one, hey, this is a small room, this is a medium room, and this is a big room. And I mean, you can get even crazier than that and be like, you know, this is a small wood room, this is a small metal room, that kind of thing. And then as the player traverses through those volumes, it just switches out which sound is going to play when you fire that weapon. You make it sound so easy, but it, I don't think it is. <laughs> it's how, how many varieties do you think you had in terms of the different surfaces and environments that a weapons are interacting with? Well, you know, I was the only one working on weapons, so I tried to keep the list as small as possible. We we didn't really get an opportunity to go too deep into service type. We kind of kept it more to general size of rooms, okay. just because you know I, I, we were trying to account. We wanted the smallest quality set of sounds to apply to like a huge set of, of weapons, right? I mean, you've got however many weapons multiplied by the different size rooms, multiplied by, you know, the various mods that you can attach and stuff like that. So I, I really tried to, to get it down to the smallest common denominator, if that makes sense. Uh, just yeah. to chime in, though, that said, we did have sort of the the room size and surface material mapped out through the actual reverbs that were assigned to those volumes. Um, and so the tail would still go through like a concrete small reverb or a wood large reverb or, or you know, whatever whatever the size and surface configuration was, it would go through at least a reverb that was uh, commensurate with whatever the space was. This... The game is, is so fun because it takes that the first person perspective um, in the sense that the audio is so crucial when it comes to perspective, um, when it comes to where sounds are placed. And I think um, something I've noticed in other games, I noticed that when the placement spatially is not done correctly, it's really confusing as a player to identify where people are, where things are coming from. So more than anything, I mean, how, how can you guys kind of de- um, describe... I don't know, it's not a live mixing thing, but it's basically the spatial placement and how that reacts to whether someone on headphones or a 5.1 or a stereo. Like, how do you guys go about with that um, implementation? So that's a very, like, technical-heavy uh, kind of system. Um, the 
term for that overall system is called spatialization. And mm-hmm. it's this uh, it's this feature that exists in our audio middleware called WISE that essentially allows you to create these abstract versions of your environments, these abstract rooms and kind of just a very low poly version of your space. And you can create these points in that space where sound essentially has to travel through to kind of give more of that spatial information that makes these environments feel a lot more real. It's 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 this whole thing where kind of tying back to what Zach and Dylan were talking about where they had to where we had to create volumes for every room, these volumes also acted as our rooms for spatialization. So every hallway, every, you know, closet, every big giant room, all those things had these volumes around them that would then be passed over to Wise for it to kind of create the simulation of, hey, this is your physical environment, no matter how low poly it is, but this is your physical environment. These are where sounds are in that environment, and this is where the player is. And now let's try and figure out how to actually make the sound physically travel from room to room to reach the player and kind of give them that information they need. How do, how do you find the, the, the translation in terms of what you're hearing, what you hear in your studio and what the players are not hearing? I'd say it's definitely like uh, when it comes to how that translation comes across, it's really just we create these rooms and that depending upon where, how a sound travels from place to place, that kind of places it depending upon if the player is wearing headphones or listening on 5.1 or what have you, kind of in the appropriate location physically uh, around them on this channel or on that channel or what have you. And it's kind of just that that sense of directionality feeds back into just playing the game and like hearing things and just reacting to how you actually hear things and how that actually directs kind of your gameplay. I think that like an interesting kind of example of this would be that without without these rooms and what have you, or if these rooms weren't necessarily drawn out, if you had an L-shaped hallway and a sound was coming from around the bend, around the corner, if you didn't have this kind of spatialization feature, you as the player who would be you know, on the other side of that corner, you might actually be able to directly tell, oh, hey, this sound is coming from like a B's line direction towards, you know, around, you know, in the direction past that corner. Versus when you have the spatialization, what you hear is that you hear the sound coming from the edge of that of that corner. And as you kind of approach that edge of the corner, you kind of get a better idea of like, okay, I know there's something around this corner, but as I get closer to the corner and, and kind of get around it, you realize, oh, they might be further down the hallway or they might be immediately t- you know, to the left of that corner, to the right of that corner, things like that. Really, the spatialization thing gives a physical presence and a physical position to a sound and allows it to travel without having to, you know, move the emitter that it's coming from. That's a great description. I'd love for you guys to talk about the the atmospheres and environments because you guys are creating really unique spaces that are very seamless. You're making these very gradual transitions into your exterior, um, louder, more ambient spaces, point source, like you'll hear like a little like bird or like a call out in a corner. And it's also and it's also very spatial. So can you guys talk about your approach to um, the environments? How did you guys go about, first of all, determining like what material you needed? And then can you talk about just creating those beds? How big are they? How diverse? How unique did you uh, go on them? Well, so first I can talk about uh, like the room tones. <clears throat> that was actually the very first thing that we made is from an ambience standpoint, uh, which is basically... In in isolation, they they actually sound really simple. Um, like it's it's basically a variation on some some low drone kind of kind of sound uh, that that loosely has characteristics of whatever surface type and what size of the room you're in. So we sort of busted out, or Justin more or less busted out this like matrix of okay. So we have wood, we have tile, we have uh, you know concrete, we have all these different surface types. And then we have very small, we have small, we have medium, large, very large, and enormous. And basically create this matrix of room tones based on, you know, wood small, wood very small, wood medium, wood large, etc. Um, and so anytime you're in an interior space, uh, I'm trying to make sure I'm not saying the wrong thing. I'm pretty sure every time you're in an interior space, 
you're hearing one of those room tones. Um, and, and again, those room tones are assigned to the volumes that we were just speaking of earlier. And those volumes have like fade in and fade out times. So as you transition from like, say, a wood small room to a concrete medium room, the wood small will fade out at whatever determined interval we've set. And then the concrete medium will fade in. Um, so you get this nice crossfade that doesn't make it a really jarring transition to go from one one room to another, so to speak. Um, and then as for the beds for exterior areas, um, it was basically a matter of tracking down, uh, you know, our, our, our number of planets and areas that like the player can go to. We called them overlands here. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was for the first thing was a matter of sort of tracking down exactly how many of these places you can go and uh, then after figuring that out, figuring out, you know, so what, what is it that the player is supposed to be feeling while, while they're here? Um, and like, what's the, what's the lore behind this area? Um, and stuff like that. So a good, a good example would be Monarch. Monarch is, uh, an area the player can go to towards the end of the game. And it's, it's notoriously, um, a very difficult area of the game. There's a lot of like really nasty enemies there that are super powerful, um, so, so I, you know, when making the bed, I was also taking into account the one shots and like bird callouts and stuff like that that you were speaking of. And so for Monarch, I wanted it to, to sound very inhospitable and like all the birds were, you know, some variation on like a, an eagle or a hawk that's kind of like a bird of prey that, that's going to, you know, all that they do is hunt. Uh, all the, all the fauna here, uh, is just, they're hunters, um, all of them because it's such a dangerous and inhospitable planet. Where did you guys source a lot of that material? Is that stuff that you went out and had recorded libraries? Like how, how did you manage some of getting those, the source material? Yeah. So some of my favorite, uh, some of my favorite sounds that we got, they were, I don't know who recorded them actually, uh, but it's part of like Obsidian's library is like some really cool bird calls that are, uh, they're pitched down by like two octaves and three octaves. Um, they're just these really bizarre sounds. Um, but they were really, really amazing for for you know, getting these alien uh, these alien tones and and making making the player sort of immediately feel like okay I'm on I'm on a very alien planet um, like this this place is not a familiar thing, um, so I mean that was some really good source. Uh, we also had some great uh, like some great winds um, that we used to kind of. You know, you you never want it to be too annoying or too overbearing, uh, but we we made sure to to make good use of calm, gentle winds to kind of make the player feel welcome in this in this space and um and really just feel like it was somewhere that they could go explore for a long period of time. I look once again just like weapons, and then I look at the number of worlds there are. How do you manage just keeping track of all this stuff, and how how do you just kind of touch base with your team so that everyone is on the same page. I mean, I mean, it just seems like it's, it's incredible. The, the scope really of what you guys accomplished here. Yeah. I think when all is said and done, we authored about 39,000 unique assets for the outer worlds. So yeah, it's definitely a tricky thing to try to figure out what's the scope of this game. Um, and step one is to really just define what that asset list is first so that you know how much time you can spend on each thing. You know, because we've got a certain amount of people, we've got a certain amount of time, and a certain amount of assets. And that that all has to be calculated so that you can figure out what is worth spending your time on. And then you kind of evaluate it from a perspective of, okay, well, how visible is this sound? And what I mean by that is like, how frequently will the player encounter this sound? Um, and how important is it in the grand scheme of things? Um, and you know, the the one thing that I could say about everyone on the team is that we're never satisfied. Um, you know, we always want to be able to hit every single sound that's on that uh, shot list. So I think it was just kind of a, a constant thing where we would find a new way to inject sound into the soundscape. But at a basic level, for creatures and weapons and for ambiences and for uh, for characters and stuff like that, um, we were able to define that scope. And then it was just really just a math problem of, okay, how much time are we going to spend on each one of these things? Now, it didn't always necessarily work out the way that we had initially planned, but I guess that's kind of to be expected, right? Like you dive into a thing and you're not really sure what the end result of it is, particularly since 
we're not talking about things that you can actually source from the real world, right? You know, this is a science fiction game, and so there isn't always that one-to-one corollary with something that you can just grab. Um, so, you know, especially when it comes to, like, creatures, for example, it's like dialing that in and making them sound unique and powerful and frightening and uh, intimidating and all the things that you kind of want from that is is kind of an unknown variable up front. And um, so it, it definitely was a balancing act. And, um, you know, our, our time estimates were frequently wrong. The ones that we came up with up front were generally wrong, but it's also to be expected that they will be because you kind of have to just dive in, you know? Mentioning character voices, I mean, I look at the, the just the list here of, you know, from the companions to all the character, all the... Um, I mean, it, there's there's like some really specific ones that that was fun, like the ADA, the Autonomous Digital Astrogator. Is that right? Is that the right acronym? So like like there's some fun opportunities where like you guys are doing some interesting things. Radio futzes. There's um obviously like the this kind of you know, the spacer character, Marauders. I mean like there's a real uniqueness to uh, this world. When you guys are setting out to um, capture, like, can you talk about voice casting, working with your characters, the people who are going to be doing the voice actors? Um, how do you manage? And I imagine, too, that, like, the script or the lines that you are going to have to be using in the game are, it's always changing. I mean, that's an assumption, but, like, how, how does it how did it work in this game? Yeah, sure. So it's interesting to us because you're right there there are so many characters in the game like last time i checked there were 700 plus a lot of characters and getting lines for them and making those lines feel unique and getting voice casting for those that feels unique so that you can make enrich this world it's a pretty hard process and it, it really just involves kind of the kind of theme that we've been talking about a lot here which is you have to find ways to group things where you can and kind of get the most value for this implementation or for this time or what have you. And so when it came to voices, what we did with that was that we actually created different groupings of importance for characters. So for example, a companion, a character that is a companion or a very important character like, you know, ADA or Ada as, as we call her, or, mm. you know, some other important NPC, that would be a principal character. And that character would be voiced by this voice talent that would only voice that one character and they would create a unique voice performance for that one character they were principal they were unique they had to have their own kind of feel to them from there we kind of went into this idea of major characters which are essentially characters that have bits of dialogue or have these kind of nuances to their performance that would require some extra level of detail to the voice talent, but not necessarily a completely unique voice that a principal character might have. And so you would get a bunch of major character, or major characters, and then you would have that major character be voiced by this one voice talent kind of doing this unique voice, but for a, a small set of characters. And that small set of major characters would all share that one voice. And then the final kind of grouping would be you would get to voice prints. So, you know, there's like of that 700 something characters, there's there's a small subset that are, you know, principal and major. But the vast majority of those characters are these kind of generic characters that are spread throughout the game and they might have one or two interactions. And that's about it, you know. And so to actually kind of get voices for all those different characters, what we did is that we created this notion of voice prints, which are essentially just a a, vo a a kind of this abstract structure of a bunch of different characters that might have different writing for, you know, if they are a civilian or if they are a guard or if, you know, they are a hoodlum or if they are from high society. And we would have one voice talent come in and read in their best voice all the lines for all these different characters. Mm. And then because of that difference in writing, that would allow for us to kind of make this one performance feel unique, even though it's on multiple, multiple, multiple characters. And so those kind of groupings of principal for unique characters, majors for kind of important characters, and voice prints for the generic characters allowed us to create these group these 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 uh these needs for 
this voice or this voice or this voice or this voice, which then allowed us to carry on into recording in a very structured and organized way that allowed us to create character sides and, you know, uh, look for voice talent that matched this character, this principal character, or matched this major character, or, you know, had the ability to kind of really feel good for a bunch of voice print characters. And when you guys record those, is that done all over the world? Is that done in your backyard? And then when you are with them in the booth, is it all a clean, close miking, get the best recording you can? Because I find that like a lot of the interactions when you are talking with people, it's a very, the camera feels, you know, it's very like a medium shot. It's very present. But then in the game, obviously, characters are running around the environments and then like it's interacting with the environment. So how do you kind of shoot for the, how do you record for like the widest use I mean, obviously, you know, if a dialogue scene or dialogues can be dialogues, never going to be in game. Um, but like, what, what are some of the considerations when you're thinking about um, your dialogue records? So you could chop up the Outer Worlds uh, VO into three categories. There's your what we call conversations, which is the framed camera. It's that tight shot where the character's filling the filling the frame, um, and that is kind of the bulk of the interactions that you have. And then there's something that we call bark strings, which is it's sort of dialogue that triggers in perspective as you're walking through the world, someone will comment on something, maybe not even directly to the player. And then there's another category that we call chatter, which is effectively stuff that reacts to the actions of the player. So if you're, if you pull out your gun and you point it at someone's face, they'll react. Or if you shoot near someone who's not hostile to you, they'll react. Or if you're in combat with them, they'll taunt you and companions, they'll react to you. They'll try to help you out. They'll try to give you feedback on where threats are coming from, etc. And so for the conversations, it was sort of that close mic perspective, similar for bark strings, because even though um, you're hearing them from afar, they're intended to be intimate one-on-one -on -one conversations, so they should sort of have that close perspective. But for uh, chatter, and particularly for combat, um, what we did was we broke it out into three different distinctions of projection level for the actors. And there was basically the quiet, I'm stealthing variant, which is something that you hear in your companions when you give them a command, they'll sort of, in a stage whisper, do their lines in that sort of raspy, whispered way. Um, and then there's the regular variant of that, which is you're just sort of giving them commands and they're responding to you as if they're pretty close to you. Um, um, and then uh, we had sort of a next level, which was in combat. And those were all sort of these yelled out barks that were at varying degrees of intensity level. And basically the way that we framed that for the actors was we had this sliding scale of one to five, one being the stage whisper and five being just like bloody murder and then everything mm -hmm. in between. And when they would do that, they would adjust their perspective to the mic and, and, and organize that with the engineer. Once again, you make something that's very complicated seem very effortless. So <laughs> <laughs> I, I made the uh, a happy accident of looking at the Obsidian Instagram account, and I saw some note about Louis the French dog. <laughs> <laughs> What's the story with Louis, your Frenchy dog? Wh whose dog is this, and how did he end up in the game? So Louis actually um, one of our animators' pets. Uh, her name's Nicole. And she also worked on The Outer Worlds. And she's actually been trying to get Louie in here for some time now. So uh, working on creatures, we had a lot of aliens that we needed to do, obviously, for this project. So it seemed like a good time to bring Louie in. So um, she brought him down, and we took him into my office. And she hooked him up with some treats and some toys. And I just put the Sankin in front of him and kind of just let him do his thing. And... The rest is sort of inside the game now. What, he, he became, was, was it the uh, the Mega Rap Raptodon? Is that right? So uh, Louis's recordings were featured most prominently in the Raptodon creatures. So they're mm -hmm. kind of those like orange, uh, kind of scaly-like tiger lizard things. <laughs> Um, but yeah, pitched down, I really didn't have to do a whole lot of processing on those recordings. They kind of had a natural kind of rasp and growl that you tend to want out of a creature source layer. So no, actually, the yeah, you tell them, what, tell them about the sinking. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, one of the microphones that we used quite a bit on this project, particularly for creature design, uh, 
the Sankin CO100K, if you've heard of it. Um, super high frequency mic, obviously. So uh, pitching down, we got we were able to keep all sorts of fidelity, which was pretty amazing. Um, so we use that whenever possible and uh, use it on Louie and a bunch of other things and to pretty great effect, I think. That's awesome. So, uh, Scott, tell me more about your creature development because I imagine there's a lot of pre-viz um, illustration, some character design that you see, and then obviously you kind of see how they move or there's some visual reference you have. Um, where did you go to... Um, or is how did you go about kind of defining? You have humans, you have aliens, you have auto mechanical enemies. There's like a you know wide range of different sizes and variations. So, um, what was your process, and and how did you go about capturing some of those sounds? Yeah, totally. So, uh, thankfully, by the time I got into the project, most of the creature art had been pretty fleshed out for the most part, yeah. with some minor exceptions. Um, so, I had a lot of concept art to look at, a lot of animations to watch. So uh, we kind of started from there and just looked at things like physiology and, like you said, how they move. And from there, sort of made some design decisions about what sort of source would be good for a creature depending on what they're made of or you know, how fast they move. Or if they're a big, chunky robot, they're probably going to sound different than you know, kind of a small, agile hover robot. Um, so from there, we basically just took those ideas and kind of just got to work and started getting source either from libraries or uh, like in the case of Louie, just busting out the microphone or, um, I mean, well over half the time, it was just me trying to eke something weird out in front of the microphone because I had a good amount of time to experiment with that and it was a lot of fun. You should tell them about taping a contact mic to your neck. So Zach has a Barkus Berry uh, contact mic, and we had some time to try to investigate what we could use that for, and we use it for a variety of things. I think Zach used it for uh, for some like weapon foley. Yeah, I, I put think. it on some of the guns when I was doing the, the airsoft guns. I just tap it on there. Yeah, as an extra mic. It has a very interesting sound, and uh, I had a little idea that I could try to do some creature vocals by taping it to my neck, and uh, I got some interesting results out of it. It's definitely. Um, a very internal, almost uncomforting sound, but uh, it was an interesting texture. Did to you it. end up using it? I did actually. Yeah. What is it used on? Um, it's actually inside the Raptodons. Oh, okay. Yeah, it gives you this very like guttural, almost like it's like inside a stomach or something. It's kind of weird. <laughs> but uh, it's I, creatures were fun to experiment with. I think above all, that was kind of the thing to try to get. Like Justin mentioned, uh, unique sounds for everybody so the player could identify them and also they they felt appropriately terrifying or in some cases cute or not terrifying. So just kind of depended. And one of the kind of the, the um, unspoken heroes of video games is Foley. I feel like uh, Footfall's um, interaction with materials and stuff is it really it it puts the player in that in that place. So uh, can you talk about we, we talked a little about the environments and the, the variation there. How do you build your full your fully engine or your library? What was unique about uh, you know also playing up the first person perspective and then also kind of the character world and creatures. In the game, we are able to d detect what surface that you're walking on, and we have a variety of surfaces in the game. We've got, you know, all the things that you would expect, water, dirt, concrete, grass, mud, wood, metal, etc. And so in our middleware wise, we send the current footstep material that you're walking on or that a character is walking on, and then we basically have this big matrix and it just switches out the correct set of sounds. And yeah, and I think, Zach, you, you're the one that cut up all the footsteps, right? Yeah, we actually recorded, um, at one point we recorded a lot of footstep and Foley stuff at Technicolor in mm -hmm. Paramount Studios. And we got so much source from those guys. And so, you know, I spent, when we first came back, I think I spent like a week and a half or two weeks just cutting up footsteps and getting them ready and put it, putting them into our, our library. So I used a lot, or almost all of that stuff, um, and then, like Justin was saying, yeah, the game kind of just 
it reads in what footstep or what material the player is walking on and swaps out that set of sounds. And I actually use that same switch for some of the weapon stuff. So like when you're firing a gun and a shell is expelled from the gun, depending on what material the player is currently standing on, it will sound like the shell is hitting that material when it hits the ground. I mean, that was actually a really clever way of just sort of, we call that a hack uh, because it's not necessarily this sanctioned thing that's done through code because we like to do things systematically through code because it's just safer. Um, but it was, you know, we're also always constantly looking for ways to cheat sounds in and get the result that we're after. Um, and uh, an another component to that whole thing um, was we captured different action types. So we've got walking footsteps, running, jumping, scuffs, all sorts of different sorts of actions. And those are also part of that big matrix. And those will switch depending on what material you're, you're on and what action you're taking as well. There's a, a really unique aspect of this game. I, I like the backstory this for the tactical time dilation effect. Um, so I guess for people who don't understand, it, it's like, I guess they they contribute it to like space travel, I guess, is like the side effect. Like your your player kind of comes out of, you know, his his frozen state, and he has this kind of this time dilation thing, which it's cool because I, I the things I was you know just looking to read online, I think it, you know it kind of takes the inspiration from Fallout Fallout's Vats, I guess, and but it's also like a bullet time, which I kind I think is you know kind of like a reference to, you know, like to a Max Payne or a Matrix. Like it's it's a it's a it's a mechanic that I think is really fun as a player because it allows the player to have a little more kind of unique control. But in the audio, it does like an incredible effect. So can you guys talk about like implementing? Because like, I guess you can use this tactical time dilation anywhere in the game. So like, how does it, because it feels like it's like on like the master bus of the game. It just like takes over kind of what the player is hearing. Yeah, so uh, tactical time dilation or TTD, is definitely one of the opportunities where we tried to make the player feel very special and powerful. And uh, I actually worked on that system with Jarek, yeah. and uh, we basically collaborated to create a system that feels reactive and uh, that it was responding to the player's input, but also we were doing a bunch of mixed stuff where we were kind of removing a lot of elements and really making that the foreground thing so that the player could focus in combat and also feel empowered in a lot of ways. Yeah, and kind of on that same notion that you mentioned about reactivity, essentially it's like, you know, you have this meter that says how much time, TTD, like, energy you have left or what have you, right? And then depending upon what actions you take, depending on how severe those actions are, you drain this meter faster or slower. And kind of what we did to kind of make it really feel reactive was that the drain rate and the percentage you had left in that meter would be sent over from the game engine to Wise. And depending upon like how fast you were draining or how much you had left before you were kicked out of it, uh, Scott would be able to go through and like, you know, increase the, the, the intensity of certain elements, remove other elements, kind of have this kind of almost like moving through liquid kind of sound where as you kind of moved this sound kind of got more intense or kind of went into the background yeah on that note i'll, I'll mention that uh, a lot of the heavy lifting was done uh, via wise and rtpcs so we're changing parameters depending on how much ttd you have left and uh, with this kind of goal of creating a lot of rising tension as the meter sort of depletes and um to Jarek's point about the sort of liquidy feel of moving through time, um, I sourced a lot of actual liquid recordings and just ran them through an ungodly amount of plugins and just recorded a lot of modulation and uh, automation on those things. And that ended up being the core sound of TTD. And uh, with some, like, obviously some effects provided by Wise as things start intensifying, but that's basically the main thing. Yeah, and um, your observation about it being strapped on the master bus is actually pretty accurate. Um, we had to split our bus into two master buses. We had one bus called Sound TTD and one just called Sound because there were some sounds we didn't want 
to change when you were in TTD? Um, and there were some that you did. And the, the way that you apply these sort of global changes is at a bus level in, in our audio middleware. Um, so, so yeah, that, that was a good observation. Another thing, cool thing we did while we were in TTD is um, we changed the way that the guns sound. I don't know, Zach, if you want to talk about that. Uh, yeah. Uh, so, I mean, originally when we were looking at TTD, I wanted to uh, kind of like keep the spirit of the gun while slowing down the the actual gun sound. Um, I think originally Justin had implemented that, so like it basically pitches down the weapons when you went into TTD. But the problem was, is obviously when you're pitching it down, you're kind of like losing that that high end fidelity. So actually, in order to 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 retain the spirit of the original gun sound while making it still sound slowed down, we used um, a granular pitch shift. Uh, called Paul Stretch, um, which basically chops up the the sample into grains and then pitches it down that way. So it sound like you know it doesn't actually pitch down. It's just slowing. It, it's more of a time stretch, I guess, if you will. Um, and then the 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 regular sound will get swapped out with that Paul Stretched version to to create the slowed down gun effect. <laughs> Was that game mechanic always in the story? Uh, what is was it something that was introduced early on when you guys were working on the game? Yeah, it was. Um, I'm pretty sure it was. It was in uh, Vertical Slice, and and early on, um, we had it so that in, in a more traditional way, where you were targeting limbs and stuff like that. But you know, we we quickly felt like you know what, actually, if we we like the ability to just give the player full range of control and they can target whatever they'd like. And it's to the point where you can shoot various limbs and stuff like that, and the um, the physics of the character will sort of take over, and you can send them flying in the air and doing all kinds of crazy acrobatic stuff with them. Something that that I love about this game is it, it harkens to uh, kind of what Fallout did. Just so, I mean, it just it, for the fans, it's, it's everything. Which is like you get in an elevator, and this elevator music comes on, and you're just like, what, like. <laughs> <laughs> And there's there's instances of that, and I think um, I imagine that a lot of those cues and, and kind of the character of the game comes from sound because of of just kind of you know everyone getting on board with this is the t- the tone of the game. Are there other 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 moments in your mind that you know when you guys could really lean in to doing something that was it feels more comedic, but it just feels like this world is kind of like it's a false advert. The whole thing is like a false advertisement of. You know, life is so much better, but in fact, it's just like, oh my God, people are <laughs> really like under under some pretty stressful situations. That whole world building thing is something that we really try to lean into whenever we possibly can. And the things that you mentioned, the the elevator music, um, I don't know where the idea came from. I think I think actually someone on the team sort of jokingly said, oh, wouldn't it be great if we could have bossa nova music in the elevators? And then I was talking to our audio producer, um, Tony Blackwell, who's actually a really accomplished musician too. He was he used to be a touring musician on um, cruises and stuff. And um, I was really booked up and I could not possibly make those things, but I had written these little jingle advertisements um, sort of in a barbershop kind of way that you hear when you interact with various vendors. It's not the best choice. It's choice. So the idea was like, well, what if we take that and we turn that into sort of a really vanilla, saccharine sounding um, bossa nova thing. Yeah, he was a beast about it. Uh, there were about seven, and he cranked them out in, over the course of a couple days. And I mean, they just kind of dropped right into the game as is. Were there any other uh, Easter eggs for you guys that, like, things that you kind of put in there that were kind of fun little 
moments from a sound, like things if someone is listening, they might catch up on? Um, so we have these different corporations in the game, and um, right. there's this one area called Cascadia, um, which is sort of this overrun town. All these monsters are there, and the people have just evacuated or been killed. And the intention is to give the impression that it's really broken down and stuff. So what I did is, as you approach the gates of Cascadia, you hear the jingle sort of greet you, right? But to give it the impression of everything being broken down, it's sort of sped up, sort of like a tape machine speed up uh, and speed down. So it's like... Dylan did something really cool with the... I'm pretty sure you did oh, with the yeah. elevator going down yeah. to the... Yes, yeah, so um, small spoiler ahead for anyone listening. Um, there is a, there's an area in in uh, our town called Byzantium, which so the story behind Byzantium is it's like the high society, you know, nobody, unless you, you don't get to go there unless you're super rich and have, you know, you're, you're schmoozing with like the, the high corporate overlords and stuff. So there's an area in Byzantium that's referred to as the retirement center, which is the whole narrative behind this retirement center is it's like super, uh, you know, you, you, you don't have to work anymore and you just get to enjoy your days, uh, you know, drinking the finest drinks and, and, uh, just living at this super nice area. Um, but the story behind this area is it's actually this elevator that goes from this really nice fancy lobby and then the elevator starts going down this long like shaft that gets nasty and grimy and then the door opens at the bottom of the elevator shaft to like robots that basically just kill you like there's all these dead bodies at the bottom <laughs> basically where so your retirement is you just going here to die so that you're not mooching off you know the hard working taxpayers and such um so so we took the one of the bossa nova elevator tracks and um zach showed me this awesome plugin a while ago it's called backmask um I to I'm not even really gonna take a stab at explaining. Scott showed me that plugin, by the way. Okay, so. well Scott it's, it showed came full Zach, circle there. <laughs> and then Zach showed me. Um, but it's this really cool plugin. Like, it's it's kind of like Justin was saying. It's almost this weird tape, uh, like tape speed up and slow down effect, but a lot of other stuff too. Um, and I basically just spent like an hour or two just kind of mangling up this. Uh, this elevator music uh, and making it like it basically goes from utopia to dystopia like over the course of this elevator ride so that by the time the player gets down to the bottom they're like oh my god I don't want to be here anymore this is terrifying um, and they so, know yeah. that it's a one way trip and you can't actually turn back so yeah I think there was something else that you did with creatures, right? Like you can kind of hear them in the distance. Yeah, I mean, on the sort of like world building note, uh, one of the things we tried to do, uh, particularly in the overlands, is to uh, make sure that creatures were always sort of telegraphing their presence in the environment. And uh, so we we had a bunch of sort of like uh, reverb and delayed out processed creature vocals playing off of them so you could hear them even when they're on the other side of the hill. And uh, I think particularly in environments like Monarch, like Dylan was mentioning, um, it really helps kind of make the environment feel scary and grounds the creatures in there. And when those creatures are dead, the sound goes away too. So it's also it's also a, a, an auditory cue to let you know there is actually a creature there. And then when you clear the environment, you don't hear them anymore. And that also lets you know sort of in a subconscious way, yeah, this, is, this area is safe again. There's so many more questions that I want to ask you guys. But for the sake of time, we can, we'll wrap it up in a few here. I, I, want, I want to ask one question for you, Justin, because being not only the full-time job of a studio audio director... You also have the task of a composer. So what is it like wearing those two hats? And I think we, before we started recording, I think even yesterday we were talking about the fact of just 
the hand-in-hand music working with sound, sound vice versa. So, um, what are some of the the pros and well, what are some of the pros of of wearing both hats in terms of determining, um, you know, where how music cues are going to play and how that interacts with the rest of your sound team? I, I think, I mean, I definitely view it as an advantage for me because. I work with everyone on the team day to day and we talk about what our goals are, we talk about what our struggles are, and we work together to figure out solutions to how we're going to develop the game. And, you know, I have a really intimate understanding of what everyone is working on and I know that each one is just bringing their entire focus, all of their passion into these sounds. And, and I know what their creative goals are. And so having that understanding helps me to sculpt the sound of the music so that it slots in with those things and complements them in a way that creates a total experience. And one example of that is called Emerald Vale, and this is the first area that the player gets to visit. And there's a lot of negative space in between each phrase of music, and that really allows the entire soundscape to have this sort of back and forth with the music. So it's not a one-sided conversation. It's this exchange that's really interesting. Um, And so I try to really sort of build that into my music so that the entire soundscape can speak. Um, and when it comes to sort of juggling the, the responsibilities of being the audio director and the composer, I mean, it's, it definitely requires 600% of my attention, but I'm really lucky because my entire team is really driven, super focused, incredibly talented, and we're, we're way on the same page um, with one another. And that allows me to take a step back and to focus on music when I know for a fact that we are 100% lockstep in what the vision should be, and I know that and trust that they're going to execute it on it and and do so in an amazing way. I mean, uh, looking at we talked about it yesterday, but just looking at the soundtrack potentially of how wide it could be, there's about 42 different cues, um, and and something about this game too is like there's those moments when you're in dialogue scenes with characters and uh, you're kind of holding and you're kind of like trying to decide what to say or do. And there's ambiences, but like, um, how do you figure out where cues go? Where do you f- like? How do you figure out the moments? Like, if you were to spot a video game, how do you guys determine those those moments? That's a really great question, and it's very tricky um, for the type of game that we make, because um, going back to that idea of we have no idea what the player is going to do, we can't predict what they're going to do, and that makes it extra tricky on the music scripting side, right? Because I'm not really sure when the player is going to decide to talk to someone. And I don't want to just transition to another piece of music as a crossfade in an abrupt fashion. I, I, you know, one of the things that I really strive for is to make sure that transitions happen on musical boundaries to make sure that that sounds really cohesive and never really calls attention to itself. Um, But there absolutely were spots in the game where I knew that the player didn't have a ton of freedom, and I took advantage of those by scripting in music that I felt would sort of pull on the nostalgic heartstrings of the player. There's one sequence in the beginning of the game that is heavily scripted and very linear, and so at various points during the progression of the player's 
path. You know, he's going through the path from a crash pod, talks to somebody, has to sneak past some dangerous marauders, and then they see their the player ship for the first time and sort of their destiny is sort of awaits them. And at each one of those beats, I try to introduce a new musical element that reflected the various emotional states of the player. So you start off in this world, you're like, where am I? You know, what is this wondrous place? This is, this is, I have no context. Um, and then you talk to someone and then, so that sort of chills out and there, there's really nothing there. And then, you know, you're sneaking past people and then sort of bringing in this dark tone. And the amount of time that a, the player can spend while they're sneaking past those dangerous marauders is indeterminate. So, you know, I have to have this loop basically that's going on in the background that they can loop forever. Um, and it has to be looped in a way that doesn't call too much attention to itself. And at a, any given moment's notice, the player can drop down off this little ledge and then see the player ship. And I wanted to call attention to that as well with using a sort of callback to the title theme using solo horn. And so what I did there is I transitioned from the this sort of dark, dangerous material into the solo horn by triggering the solo horn the moment you see the ship, but then slowly fading out the darker drone for the marauders. And fortunately, they were all in the same key, so it's pretty seamless, um, but the amount of finesse and tuning that went into getting that to feel seamless was pretty considerable. Now that you've had a chance, the game has been out. It's been out for a little bit over a week. You've heard, obviously, that the fans are loving it. There's like a huge, you know, positive reaction. What is it like for you guys? What's the rewarding, rewarding aspect of now being, you know, a few weeks removed from the game and just kind of seeing the fruits of your labor being enjoyed? At least for me personally, this is like my second sort of big release uh, following Pillars of Eternity 2. Um, uh, but at least to... to to me, this one seems kind of bigger, and and the reception's been a bit wider. Uh, it seems like, um, and it's it's just really cool. I, I don't know. It's it's a really fun experience. Like, you know, when the game comes out, and you can get on like Twitch or something and watch people streaming it, and and you just see people really really enjoying it. It's um it's kind of something that you you think about uh, and you look forward to for so long. Uh, you know, and and you're striving to like finally do this thing and then when you actually do it and in my opinion we we did it we did it well i think um and uh it's just really it's i don't know it's hard to describe honestly it, it just feels good though to, to actually see people enjoying something that you were a part of creating uh it's really it's really cool yeah i mean i think I'm super proud to see the positive reception. Um, I really enjoy seeing how people are resonating with the characters and really embracing the adventure because this game is not a new style of game, but there's something kind of like you mentioned that uh, we were able to put into it that seems to be fresh for some reason or another. And I think people are picking up on that and really getting into it, which makes it all worthwhile. You never know how one of these things is going to turn out, right? I mean, we we all sort of set out when we were working on this project to give it our all, give it our best, and really try to deliver for, for people who wanted to play the game. And to see people reacting and saying that we did deliver, I mean, I... I've worked on many games in the past. I've, I've, you know, at Obsidian, I've shipped about 17 or 18 games. And there's definitely fan appreciation that we get. And I love that. And on this project, more than ever before, really, um, I've gotten so much personal feedback for everything that we did for the sound. And, and I'm sure, you know, you've encountered this yourself. It's like, you know, sound sometimes is sort of the forgotten element of, uh, entertainment production right and um and when it gets recognized it just it kind of blows you away a little bit um and really I, that's my reaction i'm just blown away i mean not something i've encountered a ton of and I, i'm super grateful for it i think what's really fun about he having that distance and kind of like viewing how people react to the game is that there's actually things that you as a developer you never really expected or experienced or thought would actually happen. It's emergent in a way, whether it's with chatter or with weapons or just how these things interact. Like you'll be watching a stream and suddenly somebody does something and that creates this chain reaction in terms of these gameplay events that leads to this really fun sound kind of presentation along with that. 
whether it's with chatter or with environments or whatever. It's just there are times when you see something that happens on stream and you're just like, huh, I guess our audio can do that. And it's just it's just fun. It's weird because it's kind of like your baby, right? And you know all of its flaws. You've seen it for so long and you don't really it's hard to look past those flaws and you never really have enough time to do all the things that you want to do, right? So um, it kind of just at some point, it's like, all right, pencils down and that, now here it comes. And I think when everyone's working really hard, you know, and at, at the end of the project, I think it's it's easy to forget that you're making this game for an audience, right? You're kind of just like in your bubble trying to finish it and then it comes out and then you're like, oh yeah, people, people actually are going to play this game and people are going to have things to say about it. And... You know, I think the players will be more forgiving than the people who created it. You know what I mean? Because they're they're they they don't know the behind the scenes flaws. They don't know exactly what went into making the thing. All they're seeing is what it is at face value, and it's really cool to to see all the positive comments. And you know, it's it's really rewarding experience. So cool, you guys. Well, I mean, congratulations again um, to all of you. I just feel like you know, for people who. <laughs> when people look back and see how much time they spend in a game, uh, it's kind of mind-boggling. But I think it's because there's a lot of variety and, and there's aspects that keep people, you know, engaged in these worlds and t totally immersed. And, like, I'm a gamer that plays with headphones on because my wife can't handle hearing just gunshots in the middle of the night. <laughs> I get it. It's one of the most important aspects, I think, of video games. And, and I think for the Outer Worlds, you guys have just done something remarkable in the sense of you're doing something familiar, but yet doing something uniquely its, its, its own. And so I think, you know, congratulations on getting this game out out the door. Hopefully there's a little break before the next one. Um, but I'm really excited just to see what comes out of Obsidian Entertainment. Obviously, Private Division has a huge role in it. So, uh, yeah, congratulations, you guys. Thanks Thank a lot. You. Thanks. Thanks so much.